you would please open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 38. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 38. If you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you, it's page 1591. As we come to this portion of our service, we recognize that God is not silent. And as we open His Word, He speaks to us personally through the pages of His Word. And so I'd ask, out of honor and respect, for God's word that you'd please join me in standing as we read our text this morning. John 2, verses 25 to 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping God with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You may be seated. This time of year, it's very common to hear the sentiment, don't you wish we could all just treat each other the way we do all year as we do this time of year? It's very easy for us to be kind and nice to one another for a short season. And we often do that around Christmas time. You see people in the parking lot and you try and be a little nicer to them when they cut you off. And you end up shopping center and you try to be nice to people and they're obviously not being very nice to you. But even many charities will at this time of year raise most of their budget for the year. At this time of year, just people want to give and do well at this time of year. And you have family over and you're all nice and you try to get along and for some of them you're glad that it's just a few days because if it went any further you might not could hold out being nice very much longer. But for just a short time, we can do good. We can be nice to one another. We see this in our own lives as in the next few days, many of us will probably begin a Bible reading plan. There's lots of enthusiasm around the first of the year. I'm going to read the Bible through this year. But we all know that many of us are not going to make it past Leviticus. And 
And some of those who make it past Leviticus are going to fall down at numbers. And at the end of the year, you look back and you wonder what happened to all that enthusiasm you had at the beginning of the year. But it's easy to be excited at the start and to carry on that enthusiasm for a short time. It is hard to live a lifetime of faithfulness. Paul tells us in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Paul says it very boldly here. Lay aside every weight. Set aside your sin. Run with endurance. I think if you and I were writing the Bible, I know if at least if it were me, there would be a lot more of this in the Bible, right? A lot more of the Ten Commandments. Do this, don't do that, and just make sure everybody knows what to do. But God in His wisdom has actually filled the Bible with a great deal of stories. He doesn't just tell us to lay aside our sin, to set aside our weight, or to run with endurance. He illustrates it for us time after time. And that's what we have here in our passage this morning. In the lives of Anna and Simeon, we, don't, we aren't just told how we should live. It's illustrated for us. We are shown what it looks like to live a righteous and devout and a life that is waiting and running with endurance. So I want us to see from their example this morning, as you see, you have the sermon outlined there for you, for you to take notes if you want. How Simeon and Anna lived. And the first thing I want us to see is that it says of Simeon that he was righteous. He was setting aside sin, as Paul would say. But there in verse 25, it tells us this man was righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be in a right standing with God. God looks at your, your life and what he sees is righteousness and he declares that you are righteous. Righteous also means living in conformity to God's law. As Jesus told us, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And that is what righteousness is. It is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. We all know none of us do this perfectly. We have never loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind. We have never even for a day loved our neighbor as ourselves, as we should. But Christ did this. And so we see there are really two different main kinds of righteousness that we see in the Bible. The first is an imputed righteousness. Christ did love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every moment of his life. It's an unimaginable thing to those of us who are born corrupted in sin, who live just covered in sin at every moment, to think of a man who would actually love God with all his heart every moment of every day for his entire life. That is an amazing thing. And how often do we see it recorded of Jesus that he had compassion on the multitude or compassion for one who was sick? He loved people as he loved himself. Christ had perfect righteousness, and this is very different from our righteousness. And so this is the righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is the righteousness by which we are justified before God. 
When we put our faith in Christ, God accounts to us Christ's righteousness. He imputes to us that righteousness. That means he counts it as ours. And so when he looks at us, all he sees is Christ's perfection. It is, as the reformers would say, an alien righteousness because it's not our own. We didn't do it. We weren't righteous. It is Christ's righteousness counted to us. And it is all his. And yet God looks at us and he sees that perfect righteousness. But that is not the only righteousness in the Bible. There is also what the reformers often called an active righteousness. We see this clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. We're very familiar with those first two verses. That is Christ's perfect righteousness given to us by grace through faith. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our active righteousness. God did not save us merely so that we could continue to live as unbelievers. He saved us because he had prepared these good works for us to walk in before the foundation of the world. He intended for us to walk in them. And as we live and grow in grace, we not only have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, but we grow in righteousness. We grow in following God's will and obeying his commands. And God intended that for us. It is not as some accuse us of that we would say, well, once you're saved, you can just live however you want and it doesn't matter as long as you're one of the elect. It's often slanderously said of those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace that we just believe that it doesn't matter how you live after you're saved. If you're one of the elect, you're going to heaven and that's it. Far from it. That is not at all what we believe. We believe that those who have been saved, those who have had Christ's righteousness imputed to them, will live out that righteousness. They will display the fruits of their justification in their lives and how they live. It says of Simeon that he was righteous. God, in the pages of his word, documents for us his own judgment of Simeon. God says of Simeon, he was a righteous man. But as so often is the case in the Bible, it doesn't merely tell us this, but it illustrates again for us. If we look at Anna's life, it does not say explicitly that she was a righteous woman, but instead what it does is it illustrates out of one small slice of her life that she was righteous. It says of her uh, in verse 36, uh, she had lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. So we see just this one small slice of her life. She lived a pure life until she was married. And then for seven years, she lived a pure life with her husband, remaining faithful to that marriage covenant. And then when her husband died, she remained pure the rest of her life. She lived in accordance with God's ways for the rest of her life. It's a small slice of her life, but it's intended to illustrate to us Anna was a righteous woman. And this we see from her life that she has this testimony of God as well. There are a lot of things in this world that people have ambitions for. 
They aspire to wealth or power. They want to keep up with the latest fashion trends or to know every detail of the statistics of their favorite sport or just getting more likes and approval on their social media. Some of these are not good, some are evil ambitions, but most are just in the light of eternity pointless. They don't amount to anything. But what an ambition to have, to have God say of you, this is a righteous man, this is a righteous woman, this is a righteous boy or girl. Can we have any greater testimony of our lives? Who would not want such a testimony to know that God would say of you or I, this is a righteous man, this is a righteous woman. And yet, as we go through the daily warfare of this life, making war with our own flesh of the sin which still so easily besets us, it is tempting to grow weary in that fight, to say, I fought this sin over and over again. Maybe it's not that big a deal. I'm not going to commit these other sins, but this one I'm just, you know, I've tried and I've failed and I'm just not going to fight that sin anymore. It's tempting to make those kind of compromises. And Satan will often explain to us just how small and insignificant this one sin is, and surely we can just give in in order to keep from doing these larger sins. It is tempting to become apathetic in the fight against sin. It is tempting to give in to that voice that just says, it's not that big a deal, you can compromise here. But Anna and Simeon illustrate for us a life of righteousness, a lifetime of faithfulness in serving God and in following his commands. Secondly, it says of Simeon that he was devout. Devout, he was laying aside every weight. Devout is not a word that you hear much these days. It used to be a lot more common, but now we don't hear this word devout used very much of people. And what does it mean? It means to be devoted, it comes from our English word for devoted, but it's especially to be devoted to sacred things. And this very well captures the sense of the Greek word behind it. To be devout man is to be devoted to sacred things. A devout person does not have a casual relationship with God. A devout person longs to see God's kingdom come in their own heart and drive out the desires for the evil things of this world. The devout person longs to see God's kingdom come in their family and friends. The devout person longs to see God's kingdom come in their church, in their community, and to see the knowledge of God's glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The devout person reads their Bible to see God's kingdom come. They pray for it earnestly every day. And you can hear their longing for God's kingdom as they sing the hymns of glory in the pew next to us every Sunday. A devout person doesn't have a casual relationship with the things of God, but they have earnestly devoted their life to the things of God. And just like righteousness, none of us is perfectly devout. None of us longs for God's kingdom at every moment and seeks his glory with all our heart. But of Jesus it was said, zeal for your house has consumed me. But the good news is, God's love for us is not based on our devotion to him this week. If you have been especially faithful this week in reading your Bible and praying and 
following his will. God does not love you any more than the week before when you fell down on those things, when you did not serve God as you should, when you gave in to sin more than usual. God's love for you is not based on your devotion to him. It is based on his love for you. And we are not devout in order to win his favor or in order to get our prayers answered. And we are certainly not devout in order to impress the people around us with just how devout we are and how devoted we are to God. Certainly not. But we are about kingdom work here. We have been given a commission from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it is a great commission. That's what we call it, is a great commission. To go into all the world and make his name known. And it's a commission not from any earthly king. Oh, but from what a king have we been commissioned. This king came and was born in the most humble and lowliest of circumstances. He died for us in the most humiliating way imaginable. And then three days later, our king triumphed over sin and death itself as he rose from the grave. This king loved us even when we were his enemies and he adopted us as sons and daughters. This king has now clothed us and sealed us with his spirit, given us his own righteousness so that we can stand before him in his presence and be welcome and not turned away. Who could love such a king as that half-heartedly? This king is not one that the devout will only visit once a week and then have no further thought for him the rest of the week. We do not come and visit God on Sunday like an unpleasant aunt that you only see because you are hoping to get something from her will. Oh, surely not. This king we have free and unlimited access to at any time. At any moment, you can open his word and hear him by his spirit speak to you the very words of the king of kings. At any moment, you can drop what you are doing and you can stand before him in the very presence of the king and ask for anything that you want, anything, and he will hear you. And he hears us not just as a king hearing his subject, but as a father hearing his ch children. And he does not hear us like some of our earthly fathers who might hear a request and then say, yes, yes, that sounds nice, now go run and play. Oh no, our father hears us as though every request we bring to him was the most important business in the world to him. Our father hears us at every moment. Or consider how loving and tenderly he guides us from our sins. Surely anyone who is a parent has had the experience of finally growing frustrated with having to tell a child not to do something for the umpteenth time. Or any of us have probably had a situation where we have grown frustrated at having to correct somebody for something over and over again, and our frustration and impatience finally gets the better of us, and we harshly correct them and say, why did you do that? I've told you before not to do that. We all give in to such things once in a while. But imagine how tenderly our God corrects us from our sin. Not just once or twice, but over and over again. He leans on us gently by his spirit, shaping and molding us into the image of his son. 
Jesus says of himself, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who could love such a king as that in a half-hearted fashion? Who would not be totally and completely devoted to such a king who loves us in such a way? What does being devout look like? Once again, we're not really told that Simeon was devout. We're not told that of Anna, but her life illustrates what that looks like. So we see there at the end of verse uh, 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She did not depart from the temple. Does that mean that we should grab some sleeping bags and some cots and we should all, you know, make a, a living here in our church building and we don't depart from the temple night or day? No. No. Where is God's temple now? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you, that's plural, Paul was writing this in Texas today. He would have said, y'all, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In Ephesians, again, Paul tells us that he is building up us up in the church into a holy temple for God. God's temple is right here where we are, where God's people gather together to worship him. There is his temple. And the devout do not take God's temple lightly. The devout hold God's temple in high esteem. You cannot be devout and hold God's temple in low esteem. But also, Anna was night and day, it says, in fasting and prayer. Night and day. Whatever else may be said of fasting, one thing it certainly does is it adds intensity to your prayers. And that's something we've all experienced. We have a word for it now, right? We say this person is hangry. They have commercials. It's like this guy is acting all mean and angry at everybody and just say, here, have this candy bar. You're not yourself when you're hungry. And he eats the candy bar and suddenly he becomes a normal, rational human again because when you're hungry, everything is more intense. Little things irritate you that ordinarily you would just let slide off your back but when you're hungry it feels like it's super important and you're very angry about it and when you're fasting your prayers gain that kind of intensity as well and Anna did this intentionally I don't know about you but I don't like to be hungry at all but Anna did this intentionally it says night and day she's fasting and praying she did this because she longed to see the kingdom of God come. Because she was devout for the kingdom of God. She longed for it, was devoted to seeing it come. She fasted and prayed constantly to see that happen. We are tempted to apathy in our devotion to God. That's why Paul tells us to lay aside every weight. Because the cares of this world the corruption in our own lives are like weights that are attached to our ankles that hold us down. And we have good intentions to do things, to read our Bibles, to get up early and pray and spend more time to serve God's kingdom, to witness and do all the things that we know God wants us to do. And yet the weights weigh us down, slow us down, and prevent us 
from doing those things. And we are so tempted to simply give in to those ways, to say it's too much work, it's too hard right now. But Anna and Simeon provide us this example of what a lifetime of faithfulness does. Anna is now over 84 years old, and Simeon is probably somewhere close to that age himself. And yet, they have not given up being devout. They have not given up seeking the kingdom of God. They are here. Finally, Anna and Simeon are waiting. They are running with endurance. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the consolation of Israel. It says in verse 25, this word consolation is in the Greek paraklesis. Paraklesis. And if you don't know Greek, you probably recognize that sounds very familiar, like a word you already know, parakletos. Paraklesis here. And when Jesus is about to return to the Father, he says, I will pray and he will send another comforter, another parakletos. Jesus here is the comfort, the consolation that Anna and Simeon had been looking for. And Jesus has promised us another comforter, and he has been given to us as well. Anna and Simeon were in need of consolation. They were living in very dark times. If you look around at the circumstances that Anna and Simeon were living in, Rome was ruling Israel with an iron fist. The people of God were under the rulership of Rome. Even the religious leaders around them were people of whom Jesus would say later, you are of your father the devil. The political world, the spiritual world, seemed very dark at their time. We live in dark times. The world around us seems to be growing more and more hostile to our faith every day. The world around us mocks and scoffs at our devotion. The world around us is increasingly finding ways to make it illegal to believe the things that we believe. And even the churches around us, we see many are giving up on believing the Bible, on teaching what it teaches. Some of our religious leaders we've seen fall to one scandal after another where they teach things like the sin that is within them is not really that sinful and you can go on living in it and God will not correct you. We live in a dark time ourselves. But Anna and Simeon lived in a dark time and by straining their eyes waiting for the consolation of Israel, they saw the consolation of Israel. Look there in verse 32, as Simeon is rejoicing in having seen this consolation, he says of Jesus, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Also in the famous passage about Jesus' birth in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, which we read last Sunday evening at our beautiful candlelight service, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, on him the light has shone. There was a great darkness, but a great light has shone. 
A light has come to those living in the shadow of death. And however great the darkness of the world around us may seem, for those who are waiting and looking for the consolation of Israel, there is a great light and it has already come. We have so much more than Anna and Simeon had. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Anna and Simeon had almost nothing compared to what we had. They had the testimony of angels crying and, and singing at the birth of their Savior to some shepherds. We have more than that, more than even the testimony of Anna and Simeon that the light, the consolation they were waiting for had come. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the miracles of Jesus that testified to his divinity. We have the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament. We have heard Jesus shout, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man walk out of a tomb. We have seen our Savior nailed to a tree, accursed by God, made sin for us. And yet we have also seen him rise again on the third day, conquering sin and death. We have seen him rise triumphantly into the clouds and have heard the promises of the angels given to us that in the same manner that he went up, he will come back and return to us again. And we have seen the visions of the apostles and John given to us of the ultimate triumph of the Lamb as we have heard their testimony that he will come again with the trump of God and the voice of the archangel victorious over all the earth. We have seen all of this. If Anna and Simeon were satisfied with the consolation that they had seen, surely we should be satisfied with what we have been given. We should not grow weary in looking for our consolation. We should not fail to continue to strain our eyes through the darkness looking for the great light that has been given to us. We should not feel defeated as evil appears to be triumphant around us. We have a great light. We can run with endurance. We can follow the example of Anna and Simeon in waiting for the coming of their Lord. God is not hidden from those who are righteous and devout. Those who are waiting for him will find him. It is easy to look around in the year that's just ending and see the darkness of the age around us. It is even easy to look even within ourselves and see the sin that plagued us throughout this past year. And it is easy to grow tired and cold in the midst of all that darkness. And yet, we have an example of a lifetime of faithfulness of Anna and Simeon that we should follow. We should be like them. We should lay aside our sin. We should lay aside our weight. We should run with endurance so that we can have the testimony that they had of a life lived with faithfulness. The testimony that Paul had as he neared the end of his life and even from his final days writing from a prison, knowing his life is almost over, he doesn't let up for an instant. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all.
who have loved his appearing. We can rejoice as Simeon did, who said, now I can die in peace, I have seen him. We can give thanks as Anna did and spread the news as she did. We can rejoice and tell the world, our king has come. We can live as they did with a lifetime of faithfulness. Let us pray.